In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnants of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yes, once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. We uh, continue our series in the book of Haggai. It's a little book in the Old Testament. It's hard to find, just two chapters. But I think it is particularly relevant uh, to us today. Haggai was a prophet who ministered at a time when God's people, God's community, needed to examine themselves, needed to repent, regroup, and move forward, much like the evangelical movement today, I think. So last Sunday, I preached on the passage that described God's people responding to the word of Haggai, and in fact, regrouping and moving forward after repentance. So you can think of last week's message as a kind of a manifesto of the renewed evangelical movement. Remember that we identified five commitments of a renewed church. They are a commitment to God's Word, the authority of Scripture. Secondly, commitment to the fear of God, seeing God as He is, as He reveals Himself, which expels all other fears. Thirdly, commitment to the presence of God, the experience of being with God through His Holy Spirit. Fourthly, the unity of God's people, seeing God work in people and change us and bring us together. And finally, the fifth commitment is the gospel of salvation by grace. If we as a church or we as a movement maintain these five commitments, I think we'll be okay. I think we will see renewal. I I think we will see God restore our movement and restore our churches. Now, our passage today finds the people in Jerusalem. Remember, Haggai told them to rebuild the temple. They had come back from Babylon from this long time of exile, started building the temple, and then kind of got discouraged and quit. Haggai speaks to them. They repent, they regroup, and they start building again, and now they're about a month into this building project, and 
discouragement sets in again. So today, we're looking at this issue of discouragement. Now look at verse 3 in our text. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Now there were people in that community, older people, that still remembered the glory of Solomon's temple before the exile, before the Babylonians came, before the Babylonians destroyed the temple, before they took all, all the people out into Babylon. Those who came back, some of them still remembered how glorious, how majestic, how beautiful the temple was, and it really was. Everything, it seems like when you read the instructions in Scripture, it seems like everything was overlaid with gold, just tons and tons of gold. It sparkled, it was shiny, it was beautiful, and God's glory was there, and the spirit of prophecy was there, and people were unified around that temple. And now, a month into this construction project, people are realizing, especially the older people are realizing, this isn't going to be anything like what we remember. This new temple is not going to be as glorious, it's not going to be as beautiful, it's not going to be what we thought it was going to be. To make things worse, this is harvest time, the Feast of the Tabernacles, and so they're blessing the harvest, and the harvest is meager. Resources are scarce. And as they think about finishing the temple, they're realizing that they're, they don't have what it takes to rebuild it. So the governor, the high priest, and all the people are feeling discouraged. And they're about to quit this work again. And so God speaks to them. Our passage is God's response to the discouragement of His people. And I want to address this issue of discouragement because I think we are, as a movement, as the larger church, in this season of discouragement. The current issue of Christianity Today features an article titled, Emptied Out. Tens of thousands of pastors want to quit but haven't. What has that done to them? The article goes on to explain deep discouragement among the clergy in the evangelical churches. And of course, discouragement among the leaders surely reflects discouragement among the people in our churches. Or even the discouragement of following Jesus altogether. Now, I know, I'm well aware that some of us here today in or around Chatham are struggling and are discouraged. Some of you are still on the fence about participating in church altogether or even following Jesus altogether. Some of you are here today, but you're not at all committed to Jesus and you're not at all committed to the church. Some of you are trying it out and see if it sticks this time. Some of you may have already decided to leave. Or maybe some of us will just keep going keep going through the motions for a while because we ought to until we slowly drift away. So we need to learn how to persevere. We need to learn how to overcome discouragement and continue the work and continue to keep going. I think all of us are in need of this message because all of us deal with discouragement to some degree. So we need to figure out how we can encountering discouragement, get over it so we can continue and not quit and not give up, as many have in the last several years. How do we do that? How do we keep going? 
That's what my question is this morning. This text, I think this very valuable text, teaches us that to, in order for us to persevere, we need to hear the word to the discouraged. We need to hear God's word first. Secondly, we need to see the hope for the discouraged. And finally, we need to meet the Lord of the discouraged. So the word of the dis- to the discouraged, the hope for the discouraged, and the, and the Lord of the discouraged. So let's work through this. Look at verse 1. So our passage begins, and I think it begins wonderfully strong. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. On a specific day, on the day when they were discouraged, on the day when they were considering quitting, both leaders and people together, the word of the Lord comes. It comes through this prophet, as we mentioned last week, the prophet who one Tuesday night went to bed as a lamb and woke up as a lion and now is preaching to God's people and they hear him by God's grace. And so as they deal with this discouragement on this particular day, the word of the Lord comes. And that shows that the Lord cares about our discouragement. He comes to us in our discouragement and he encourages us. John Newton, in one of his hymns, put it this way, Pensive, doubting, fearful heart. Hear what Christ the Savior says. Every word should joy impart. Change thy mourning into praise. Yes, he speaks and speaks to thee. May he help thee to believe. Then thou presently will see thou hast little cause to grieve. The fact that God speaks to the discouraged shows his faithfulness to us. God does not give up on us when we are about to give up on him. His normal pattern, and you see it throughout the scriptures, you see it throughout the Christian history, and you see it in many testimonies in this very church, that his normal pattern is to affirm his commitment to us when our commitment falters. So this word to the discouraged reminds us of the very nature of God's relationship with us. When we are discouraged, his word comes and affirms us and affirms how he sees us and what he does with us. So listen to what he says in verses 4 and 5. The Lord says that. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. He's speaking to the very people who are discouraged. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And then just so that no one is left out, be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you. I am with you in your discouragement, declares the Lord. I'm coming to you according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. You don't chase the spirit away by your discouragement. God says, keep going because I am with you. Stick with it because I am sticking with you. My spirit remains among my discouraged people. 
Don't be afraid. God says, I will be faithful to you just as I have been faithful to you when I took you out of slavery in Egypt. I will not abandon you now, God says. So be encouraged, hear my word, and keep going. Now this word of the Lord through Haggai emphasizes God's faithful presence with his people. In our discouragement, God comes to us and assures us that he is with us and that he will never leave us. As an old gospel song says, I don't believe he brought me this far to leave me. It is God's faithfulness that enables us to persevere. I see God flips it. We are sitting there in our discouragement. We're saying how unfaithful we are. And God comes to us and he says, but look at how faithful I am. And his faithfulness actually enables us to persevere. It's his faithfulness that then feeds into our discouragement and turns it around and enables us to, to keep going. This is, this is an amazing thing and paradoxical thing, as many of God's things are. That in our discouragement, he comes and he shows us his faithfulness. Listen to Eugene Peterson. He says, God sticks to his relationship. He establishes a personal relationship with us, and he stays with it. The central reality for Christians is the personal, unalterable, persevering commitment God makes to us. Perseverance is not the result of our determination. It is the result of God's faithfulness. We survive in the way of faith not because we have extraordinary stamina, but because God is righteous, because God sticks with us. Christian discipleship is a process of paying more and more attention to God's righteousness and less and less attention to our own. Finding the meaning of our lives, not by probing our moods and motives and morals, but by believing in God's will and purposes, making a map of the faithfulness of God, not charting the rise and fall of our enthusiasms. It is out of such a reality that we acquire perseverance. What Peterson is saying is that the key to keep going, the key to persevering, to, to not quitting and not staying discouraged, is to simply look more and more at how God defines his relationship with us, at God's own character, at God's own actions, at God's own history, at the map of his faithfulness to us. So if you are discouraged this morning for whatever reason, and there are a multitude of reasons why we could be discouraged, if you are looking for a reason to keep trying, you need to hear God's word to you this morning. And God says to you very directly, very personally, very intimately, he says to you, be strong and keep going, for I am with you. My promises are true, says the Lord. I am the Lord of hosts, and I have committed all my power to save you and to help you and to bless you. You only need to think of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus to know how committed God is to you. That's the same God that gave his son for you, the same God who took his people out of slavery in Egypt, the same God who brought him back from Babylon, the same God is speaking to you today. And he says, I am with you. My spirit is in your midst. And I will never leave you or forsake you. Don't be afraid. Persevere and keep going.
That's the word to the discouraged. Once you hear this word, you now need to discover the hope God provides for us. Now, of course, hope has to do with our future. Now, look at what God says about the future of his people in verses 6 and following. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. This is the picture of their future. And God is encouraging this discouraged group of people. He's encouraging them by drawing their attention to the future. Now, it is not surprising at all that in the last several years, as I look through my sermons and the series that we've picked and the Bible studies we've done, that there's a growing emphasis on the glory that is to be revealed to us. There's a growing emphasis on what is to come when Christ returns. I think all of us, certainly me, have grown in our understanding of what God is promising to us when He returns. And that picture, that vision, as we looked during Advent of last year, that, that vision of the heavenly city, of the new heaven and the new earth, of the renewed creation, of that glory that is promised to us in Christ, that picture informs how we live today. And it actually fuels our perseverance. It has for me, for sure. And I hope it has fueled your perseverance as well. Now, when you think about our Christian understanding of, of time, it's, it's strange. You know, when we think about past, present, and future, it's all kind of put together in all sorts of different patterns. For example, we are told that God has put eternity into our hearts, right? Scripture says that. Or we are exhorted to become who we are. I frequently tell us, right? Become who you already are in Christ. Or we are reminded that we live in the tension of the already, but not yet. Or we read passages like this one, that the, for the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So let me add another paradoxical statement to our already confused relationship with time. Remember the future. Remember the future. Because that is our hope. The hope, our hope lies in remembering what is to come. Focusing on the hope of our future allows us to persevere in the present. Amen. So let me make two observations about this hope that God lays out for God's people in our passage. Number one, what you are doing in the present will endure in the future. What you are doing in the present right now will endure in the future. Verses 6 and 7 describe a great shaking of all creation and all nations. What's interesting is that this very passage is quoted in Hebrews chapter 12, and it's explained to us a little bit more. So let me read this. In Hebrews 12, 25 and following, this is how it reads. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. 
Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. This is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. When God shakes the world, only the permanent things will survive. All the sin, all the brokenness, all our struggles, all our discouragement, all the human pride will get sifted out. But all the true, good, and beautiful things will remain forever. And then the author of Hebrews makes an incredible statement. He says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Now, now we're in the present time again, right? He's saying something will happen, the great, a great shaking will happen, where all the impermanent things, all the sinful things will fall away and disappear, but all the permanent things, all the eternal things will remain. And then he says, be grateful, for you have already received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Meaning that even now, we live in the permanent, in the eternal. Even before it is revealed to the whole world, and even as we deal with all the impermanent things alongside of it, we have taken hold of something that will not be shaken. When things shake, we are already holding on to something that cannot be destroyed. We've already received the kingdom. And a whole order of things, a whole new life that will survive the great shaking and will endure forever, and we're already living it now. So if you are in Christ today, if you're a Christian, you have connected through Him to something permanent, something eternal, something enduring, which means that whatever you are involved in through Christ, for Christ, because of Christ, will endure forever. Is it worth persevering as you grow in Christ? Is it worth it to repent and to get up again and say, I will pursue holiness again? Is it worth it? Is it worth persevering in the life of the church when you see dysfunction and you see struggles and people fail you and leadership fails you? Is it worth persevering in kingdom work? The answer is yes. Of course it is. Because what you're doing now in the present actually has to do with these enduring eternal realities that are unshakable. So when you get up again and you say, I will repent of this sin and I will once again pursue holiness in my life. What you're saying is that I'm letting go of the shakable things and I'm holding on to the eternal. And when things get shaken up, and they will, and they do now, and in every life you experience those periods of shaking. When that happens, if you are holding on to the eternal, which in Christ you are, and if this is your focus and this is your life, everything you do through Christ, everything you do for Him, if you're holding on to that, that can never be shaken. And whatever you're investing in that will remain forever. So remember your future and let your perseverance now be fueled by, by that hope. Now the second aspect of our hope is this. Your future will be greater than your present. Your future will be greater than your present. 
This is one of the principles in God's Word. The best is yet to come, we say. That's true. Or as we read in verse 9, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. The latter glory of this house, they're talking about the temple they're rebuilding, will be greater than the former glory, than the glory of Solomon's temple. You see, God's glory spreads, and eventually the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It follows that what we experience now will pale in comparison with what God has prepared for us in the future. The best is yet to come. And the vision of the glory of the future allows you to persevere now because your future will be better than your present. Now, there are partial and ultimate fulfillments of this principle. For example, in response to the people's discouragement, God promises to have the treasures of the nations be brought in. God says, all the gold and silver is mine, and I will provide for my people, in verse 8. Now, we read in Ezra 6 that by decree of Darius, the emperor of the time, some taxes from the local tribes, by the way, who were opposing the building of the temple, some of their taxes were redirected to the returned exiles to finance the construction of the new temple. So when God actually is speaking to his people in Haggai, he's saying, don't worry, all the money is mine. I will simply redirect the taxes to you. And so the people who opposed the construction of the temple actually end up bringing their treasures into the temple to complete the temple. By the decree of the emperor, of course caused by God himself. So we see the partial fulfillment already here for these people. So this encouragement is, is very present for them. But of course there is the ultimate fulfillment. Isaiah 60 verse 5 says, then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. This is the ultimate fulfillment. Look into glory, looking at the renewed creation, when all the nations will use all their resources properly, and there will be complete economic harmony in the world under the rule of Christ. That's the ultimate fulfillment. That's why that future is always better than our present. But even in our present, we're seeing partial fulfillments. Now look at verse 7, where God says, I will fill this house with glory. They're saying, this, this house, this temple we're building, it does not look glorious. Not like Solomon's temple. And God is saying, there will be a time when this house, this building, will be filled with glory. Think about that as you're building there will be a time sometime later, and in their case, much later. Because the first fulfillment of this prophecy happened when Jesus was brought into the temple to be dedicated. The glory of God filled the temple again. I'll come back to that instance. But the ultimate fulfillment will happen when Jesus returns, and the whole world will become God's temple filled with his glory. We looked at Revelation 21 and 22, and the picture you get there is that this new creation, this new heaven and the new earth, is like a temple, is like a city, is like a garden, but everything is filled with God's glory. 
because that's where God is with His people. That's the ultimate fulfillment. And Haggai is saying, when you're building this temple that looks pathetic right now, looks as, if, as nothing right now, remember, there will be a time when it will be filled with God's glory. You will see it. Some of you will see it. Maybe next generations will see it. But then there will be the ultimate fulfillment when the whole world will be filled with His glory. And this is what you are participating in. This is the work you're doing. For Christians, we're always trending up. Now, we may experience some setbacks, and the trend is not always consistent like this. Sometimes it's like this, right? But it's always going up because even our afflictions are light and momentary, and they prepare for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So remember your future and be encouraged. Now let me give you one more encouraging example. I thought of it this morning. Eight years ago, things looked pretty bleak in Ferguson. Many churches decided to intentionally work toward unity among black and white Christians in North County. There's an intentional push for that among the churches. I came in right after it started, was brought into this group of pastors, group of churches that were focused on, on restoring unity among Christians in North County. And yesterday we saw a partial fulfillment of that hope. At the women's conference here at Chatham, put on by three local churches, with many others participating from other churches, led by an African-American leader in a predominantly white church. We saw, what, maybe about close to 200 black and white sisters worshiping Jesus in unity. That's a partial fulfillment of, of our hope. Because we know that the ultimate fulfillment will be when Jesus returns and all of God's people will worship the Lord and the Lamb in the renewed city of God. Amen. And that hope, you see, that vision, that future allows us to do what we do now Amen. and say we want to see some partial fulfillments of it now, even as we look at the ultimate fulfillment in the future. How cool is it to be part of that? And how encouraging is it for us, Christians in North County, to say we got to keep going we got to respond to God and keep working and not fear and not get discouraged because we remember our future. And finally, after hearing the word of encouragement and remembering our future, we must meet the Lord Himself. Now, this passage um, has produced many commentaries, hymns as well, so in the history and the liturgy of the church, this is, this is a pretty important passage. And the reason is, is, is that Christians throughout generations saw in this passage not only encouragement for the people rebuilding the temple in 520 B.C., but encouragement for all people. As I've already shown, these words of encouragement apply to all Christians. We read it and we apply it to ourselves because the Spirit is in our midst 
God is faithfully present with us. Our work will endure, and our future is better than our present. But there's also a bigger promise here, a prophecy that affects the whole world and invites everyone into a life of hope. So I want to address all of you, Christians or not, maybe you're only here because of your mom. Welcome. We're glad you're here. <laughs> glad you're here. And so I will address everyone, Christians and, and non-Christians, believers, unbelievers, wherever you are on that spiritual journey. There is a big promise that affects you from this text. Look at verse 7. God says, I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Now let me read another translation of this verse. And some of you are familiar with that. That's how you learned this verse from the King James Version. The King James read this way. And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The desire of all nations shall come. Most commentators throughout the centuries take this verse as a messianic prophecy, as a prophecy that relates to the coming of Jesus. Now, sure, we can see how it can mean other things, financial provision for the needs of the new temple, certainly the treasures of the nations coming in then. But there's something else that's going on here, something greater. It's not just money coming into the temple. It's the treasure, the desire of all nations. It's someone that will come. It's not just things, but it's a person. Someone referred to as the desire of all nations is promised to come. And when he comes, the temple will be filled with glory. And this glory that this desire of the nations will come, who, who comes will bring, this glory will be greater than the glory of Solomon's temple. Now, of course, in Solomon's temple... God's glory was present. God was there. He was dwelling with His people. And the spirit of prophecy was there. God was speaking to His people from that temple. And people were symbolically reconciled to their God through sacrifices. All that was happening in Solomon's temple. But now, says Haggai, a greater glory will fill the, temp the temple. A greater prophet will speak an even greater word of encouragement. A greater sacrifice will be offered, and God will establish peace through him, through the desire of all nations. Of course, we're talking about Jesus. Now, let me show you in the rest of the scriptures how this prophecy is being fulfilled. John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, like in the temple in the wilderness. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When Jesus came, John says, God came to people, and God's glory now became revealed to us, and, it, and he dwelt with us. We could touch him. We could see him. God's glory came near to us. And when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to be dedicated in the temple according to the law, it was God's glory filling the temple in fulfillment of Haggai's prophecy. 
When the old Simeon, this old man who was waiting for the Messiah, was waiting for, for Haggai's prophecy to be fulfilled in his time, when he saw Jesus and he took the baby into his arms, he blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. What did he see? He saw glory come into the temple. A light to the Gentiles, a light to the nations, because the desire of the nations came, and it brought glory to God's people Israel. The glory of God filled the temple, that very temple that the people in Haggai 2 are building, that same temple. When Mary and Joseph on the way home from the feast in Jerusalem realized their 12-year-old boy was not with them, they went back and found Jesus in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Because the spirit of prophecy has been restored to the temple. A prophet greater than Moses came to proclaim good news to the world. And in Luke eleven thirty one, 31, we read Jesus responding to the unbelief of the people, and he says, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, behold, something greater than Solomon is here. What is he saying? He's saying a greater glory is coming. The latter glory of this temple is greater than the former glory under Solomon because someone greater than Solomon is here. The wisdom of God came. When the religious leaders were arguing with Jesus about the Sabbath, Jesus said, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is greater than the temple. You remember when Jesus came to the temple in Jerusalem, the same temple that the people were building during the time of Haggai, he found that the nations were not welcome there, that the nations couldn't bring their treasures in. They couldn't come and meet the desire of the nations. So he cleansed the temple. He cleansed it, and he said, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The desire of nations came to the temple. Jesus said of himself, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And not far from the temple in Jerusalem, he was crucified. He was buried in a borrowed tomb, and he rose again on the third day to become the new temple for us, the greater temple. There was an earthquake when he died. Remember that? God was shaking the earth and the heavens. Jesus was shaken for us. The Son of God was shaken for us, and yet he persevered for us. In his discouragement, he did not give up. He remained faithful. He did not quit. And through his death, through the great shaking, through his resurrection, we are offered an unshakable kingdom. And it's in Jesus, our new temple, 
that the Lord gives peace to all who believe. You have to meet him. You have to meet him. If you're looking for hope, the hope is in him. He is our hope. He is the hope of glory. So if you're discouraged, look to him. Look to Jesus. If you're a Christian, look harder to him. Have a more focused look at him. Figure out who he is even better. Remember what he did for you. Remember his promises. If you're not a believer, take that first look at him and fall in love with him. See him as he is and realize that he is your desire. He is your treasure. Just as he is the treasure of all nations, he is your treasure. He is your desire. So if you are discouraged, look to him. Or as Hebrews 12 puts it, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How can we do that? Look into Jesus. Look into Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, you can endure anything because he endured everything for you. He was shaken so you can remain unshaken. Turn to Jesus and be encouraged. If you're looking for hope, it is in him.